0: Good morning, Gresham Bible Church. It's wonderful to be with you all, and we're going to finish our series in John chapter 1 this morning. We've been going through John 1, this opening passage of the Gospel of John, as we've been in this Advent season and preparing our hearts for Christmas to celebrate the coming of the Word made flesh and this morning we're going to be looking at the final few verses of this opening section, verses 14 through 18 of John chapter 1. If you have a Bible and if you haven't turned there already, go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. We'll be reading this passage here together in just a couple minutes. This, this passage, John 1, that we've been looking at, it contains some of the most profound theological truths about Jesus in all of Scripture, some of the loftiest statements of who God is and who his son Jesus is, and it calls us to respond by believing in him and by worshiping him. Here we see in our passage this morning that God became flesh and dwelt among us. The fullness of all God's grace and all of his truth comes together in the person of Christ. In Jesus, we have seen the glory of the invisible, eternal, infinite almighty God. My prayer is that as we consider these few verses together over the next few minutes, our response would be one of greater belief and greater wonder and worship at our God. And also that we would have greater love because of the love that he has loved us with. So let's read John 1, 1 through 18. We'll read the whole passage that we've been looking at these past few weeks, starting in verse 1. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. These things that we've just read and that we'll be spending a few minutes thinking together about, they're they're such lofty truths about who you are. And um, we pray that you would guide our thinking, that you would keep us clear, and that it wouldn't be thinking just to think, but it would be thinking that's oriented towards worship, that we would have greater belief, greater trust in who you are, and that we would worship you more fully as you deserve. Lift our hearts and minds up to you now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage begins with the phrase, and the Word became flesh. This is, in some ways, I think the climactic statement of this whole prologue, this opening section of John's gospel. Back in verse 1, John introduced the Word. And then after that, we read of John the Baptist who came to bear witness to the Word, to the true light. And then it said that the true light who came into the world would give the right to become children of God to all who receive him and believe in his name. And now in verse 14, it refers again to this divine word who was there at the beginning. The word became flesh. In a lot of ways, we could say this is Christmas in a nutshell. During Advent, at Christmas time, we celebrate that God became human in the person of Jesus. We celebrate the incarnation, the enfleshing of Jesus, of the word, of God. It's hard not to think about carne asada when I think of the word incarnation. Carne, flesh, meat. That's That's what we celebrate. We celebrate God taking on a body, a flesh. The incarnation is a glorious truth and a deep mystery. We can only begin to comprehend all that it means that the divine word of God became flesh. And in order to begin to grasp all that it means, we have to consider who this Word is, and what John has already said about the Word that became flesh. Back in verse 1 again, it says, The Word was in the beginning with God. He was there at creation before time began. He was with God and He was, was God. He was not made, but with the Father. He was the maker of all things. There are only two categories of all that exists or has ever existed. Created things and the Creator. Everything and everyone falls into one of those two categories. The creator category consists of God and God alone. Everything else is in the created category, and only the creator was not created. And the Word was in the creator category. The Word is God. This is a basic truth, and yes, yet it's an infinitely deep mystery about our triune God that we have to be clear on and we can't ever let go of. The Word, God the Son, spoke into existence the universe, a universe whose limits are unfathomable, made up of who knows how many billions of galaxies. Maybe somebody knows, but I, I definitely don't. And our world occupies just a tiny little invisible speck in one solar system in one of these innumerable galaxies in our universe. The word existed for all time past. He has no beginning and no end. There's no limit to his knowledge and wisdom. He sees all that has ever existed and has complete knowledge of every inch of this vast universe and every microscopic organism in the deepest parts of the Pacific Ocean. And he knows every inkling of every thought that has ever crossed the mind of anyone throughout all of human history. This divine word, the eternal, infinite, transcendent, and almighty God, he stooped down, or in theological language, he condescended. He came down to be with us, lowered himself, and inhabited a moment of time some 2,000 years ago. He became a tiny little fetus and made his home in the womb of a young virgin girl in an obscure little town in Roman-occupied Israel. And after nine months, he was born in a manger, and his birth was announced by heavenly armies of angels. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The God of the universe, who cannot be contained in the, heaven, the highest heavens, made his dwelling among us. The, the language of this word, uh, dwelling with us, the dwelling language, it's the same kind of language we've, we've been seeing in Exodus with the tabernacle. There it says that God instructed Moses and the Israelites to make a tent, a tabernacle, so that his presence may dwell in their midst. The tabernacle was the temporary dwelling place of God for the people of Israel, and Jesus is the ultimate dwelling place of God, the display of God's presence in perfection. The tabernacle, and later the temple, this was a reminder, a shadow pointing ahead to the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. When the tabernacle was completed at the end of Exodus, if, you're, if your Bible studies have reached the end of Exodus by this point, good job, you're making good, good speed. Uh, but Exodus 40, the tabernacle was completed and the glory of God came down and filled the tabernacle and the priests and even Moses couldn't enter the, enter the tabernacle because of God's glorious presence there. But as verse 14 of John 1 here in our passage goes on to say, when the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us, we have seen his glory in a way that Moses never could. We've seen the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In the rest of the passage, verses 15 through 18, uh, we can see these concepts of grace and truth are being kind of unpacked in various ways. We see what it means that Jesus was full of grace and truth. In many ways, this pair, grace and truth, it captures the whole purpose of the incarnation and captures the glory of the gospel. God became human to display his grace and his truth to us, his loving and faithful character. The phrase grace and truth, it corresponds in many ways, and I'm convinced that this is intentional on John's part, It corresponds to that definitive statement of God's character in Exodus 34 that Megan referred to, that we've been thinking about in Exodus. There, the Lord described himself as gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Grace and truth, which is used twice here in John 1 in our passage, I think it's meant to be kind of a summary statement of God's gracious character and truthful character and faithful, loving character as he revealed it throughout the Old Testament. And here John is saying that God's gracious and loving, faithful and true character is displayed most perfectly in the word become flesh, in Jesus. Grace and truth comes up again in verse 17. It says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is the first time in John's gospel that he refers to Jesus as Jesus, that he uses the name Jesus and then attaches Christ to it, which is not just Jesus' last name. Christ means Messiah. Up to this point, the Son has been referred to as the Word, and now it's saying that the divine Word who was there at the creation, who became flesh and dwelt among us, this is Jesus, and he is the Christ. He's the long-expected Messiah when it says that the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, it's not saying that there was no grace or that there was no truth before Jesus came. It's, not, it's also not saying that the law of Moses or the scriptures that preceded John the Baptist were somehow without grace or totally lacking in truth. As we've been reading again in Exodus, God gave the law to Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai as a gracious gift from a God of truth. But the law wasn't an end in itself. It pointed ahead to a greater display of God's grace and truth yet to come. Later in John's gospel, Jesus makes the bold claim in, in chapter 5 that Moses wrote of him. The law d- did come through Moses, but Moses also wrote of the seed, the offspring of the woman Eve, who would come to crush the serpent's head and overturn the curse of sin. Moses also wrote that this seed would be a blessing to the nations and that he would come from Abraham's lineage and Isaac's line after him and then Jacob and then from the tribe of Judah. Moses wrote all of those things. He also wrote that this coming one from Judah's line would be a king who would rise like a star and defeat his enemies. Yes, the law did come through Moses, And Moses also wrote in a way that anticipated this coming Passover lamb who would be slain as a sacrifice, a substitute in our place as sinners, shedding the blood that's necessary for forgiveness from God. Here in verse 17, I don't think John is setting up some sort of conflict between the law of Moses or the Old Testament on one hand and grace and truth that comes through Jesus on the other hand. I think he's saying that God's written word, like the living incarnate word, is a gift of grace, and it's true, but there's a greater truth that comes afterwards, a greater truth that the law of Moses anticipated. What he's saying is, look, this one, this Jesus, this offspring of Mary's womb, he is the Christ, the Messiah, the seed of Eve's lineage. The grace and truth Moses and all the prophets anticipated, and whom all God's people longed to see, he is here, and he is the eternal creator God made flesh. John the Baptist, who's also known as John the Witness, or sometimes just JTB, Eric, there we go, Eric, Uh, John the Baptist, John the Witness, he came and bore witness about the word, as it says in verse 15, it reiterates what it said earlier in John 1. In a similar way to John bearing witness, before John, Moses and the prophets also bore witness and prepared the way, like John, for the coming Messiah, the one who would be the climactic expression of the character of God, of the grace and truth of God, the perfect display of these two traits. So he came full of grace and full of truth. Let's think for a few minutes about what it means that he came full of grace. Verse 16 says, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. This is somewhat of a strange little phrase here, grace upon grace. It uh, could be seen just as a a way of simply kind of going beyond a simple statement of God's grace. I think it certainly is that. We've received grace in Jesus, but it's it's not just a simple grace. One way to understand the phrase grace upon grace is that In Christ, we have layers and layers of grace, endless grace, grace all the way down. The glorious blessings we have in Christ are a limitless supply of his undeserved favor on us. I think what he's saying is that God's grace gives way to more grace. We have the grace of the incarnate word on top of God's grace that has already been on display throughout history and in all of scripture up to this point. Again, Moses and the prophets experienced and wrote of God's gracious and merciful character and his steadfast and true love. And they, like John the Baptist after them, all bore witness to the full expression of grace that would come in Jesus, the word become flesh. Grace upon grace is like the gift that keeps on giving. It's like the gift that keeps on giving the whole year long, right? Like Clark Griswold's, Jelly of the Month Club, is that what it is? I've looked at Eric for everything, I don't know. I know that he's a Christmas vacation fan. But it's it's also like the coffee roaster that Jason Bach gave me. Jason's not here. Thank you, Jason, for that wonderful gift. In itself, that was a great gift. But every morning, when I drink my cup of coffee that's been freshly roasted and freshly brewed, that gift has given me another gift. I get to experience a gift every time I have a cup of coffee. Uh, From... So, I tried. I tried an analogy, an illustration. From the fullness of Christ, we have received this kind of grace. Obviously, infinitely greater. Grace upon grace. It was God's grace through Moses and the prophets and John the Baptist that prepared the way for the Messiah to come. And added to that grace was the coming of the Son, the Word made flesh, the incarnation. And added to that grace was the work He accomplished in His flesh on the cross for our salvation. When the divine word took on flesh and the Messiah came, it was for a purpose. It wasn't just so God could become man and dwell among us, as wonderfully gracious as that is. He came to accomplish an even greater grace, grace upon grace. He came to be with us, and he came to save us. This is why Advent and Christmas are all about the gospel. The incarnation was the way to the cross. In Philippians 2, it kind of, it's a well-known passage, and we've referred to it often here at Gresham Bible Church, but it kind of traces this path of Christ. From the greatest heights of heaven, equal in essence and status with God, down to the humble state of human likeness. Then, down even further, to the lowest point, to the point of death, even death on the cross. The grace of God's condescension to become a man gave way to a grace of Of an even greater condescension to death, to the unjust death of a criminal. And then he was raised and highly exalted again as Lord and King of all. Colossians also speaks of this same kind of thing as we went through this in our sermon series over the past few months. We saw the supremacy of Christ on display all throughout Colossians. Christ is the image of the invisible God, it says. He's the the creator of all things, all things were created by him, through him, and for him. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. John 1 and Colossians, especially Colossians 1, they have all sorts of themes in common, echoes with each other. And through, through the preeminent son, it says in Colossians, through Christ, God was reconciling all things to himself, making peace by the blood of the cross. It says that we who were alienated from God and lost in our sin, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us holy and blameless before him. For him to reconcile us to himself, to redeem us, and to take away our sins, he had to come and die. And to come and die, to do this, he had to become one of us, he had to become flesh. Without the incarnation, There would be no cross and there would be no gospel. Christ came to us who were weak and lost in our flesh, who were dead in our sin. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, as it says in Romans 8, another passage that unpacks some of these same themes. He sent him to us to condemn our sin in his own flesh, to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, to pay the penalty sin deserves. And it was his becoming a man, becoming flesh that made pos- made it possible for him to redeem us. For those who are in Christ, who have put our faith in his coming and his death and his resurrection, for us there is now no condemnation. In his flesh he took on our sin and bore the penalty of death we deserve. And now, we who are in Christ walk, according to what it says in Romans Eight, again, we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit that he has given. The good news of Jesus is that he died in the likeness of sinful flesh to atone for our sin, and he rose bodily in the flesh to redeem us and to renew us in the Spirit, giving life to our mortal bodies through his own resurrection. And because he became flesh and he experienced a life of full humanity, he can sympathize with the frailty of our experience, of our flesh. Another place in the New Testament that echoes many of these themes of John 1 is Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. There it says that God has spoken in His Son. Uh, in the past He spoke through the prophets, but now He has spoken a greater word in His Son through whom all things were created. It says in Hebrews 1, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Very similar to John chapter one there. And this one who, ex- who shares the exact nature of God, he became flesh and was made purification for our sins in his flesh. And now he sits again at the right hand of the father exalted on high, where he ascended to the place from which he came to save us. Hebrews goes on to say that the son partook of the same flesh and blood we experienced. And he did this through his death in the flesh that he might defeat sin and death and the devil. He was made like us in every way, though without sin, so that he could become the faithful and merciful high priest who makes atonement for our sins once and for all. In our passage in John, it could have just said God became man or the word became man, but Saying the word became flesh is a more poignant and powerful way, a more forceful way to say that the infinite God, the almighty creator of all things, descended to a lowly place. He came down from his glorious height and he descended to the weak and humble state of human flesh. He took on all the limitations and earthiness entailed in becoming flesh. He took on full humanity In his flesh, Jesus looked and felt and thought and acted like we do. Contrary to what the song says, that little Lord Jesus crying, I think he did make. Uh, I think Jesus cried. He had poopy diapers or poopy swaddling clothes, whatever they had back then. I think he had to clip his fingernails. He got scrapes and bruises when he was playing with his friends, and I think he probably busted up his knuckles when he was working with Joseph in the shop. He also had the same kinds of thoughts and emotions we do. He didn't just look human. He didn't just put on flesh, kind of like an exterior, like a suit. He became flesh, it says. He took on all that it means to take on humanity, though without sin. This is the the mystery of the incarnate God. He was like us, but perfectly blameless, without sin, fully man in his body, in his soul, in his heart, in his mind, but not ever falling short of God's righteousness in his actions, in his thoughts, in his words, in his attitudes, or in any way at all. He experienced what it means to be human, including the temptation to sin. Hebrews 2.18 says, "...for because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In Jesus we have one who can sympathize with our weaknesses." who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And that last phrase is of utmost importance. There's great comfort in knowing that he walked in our shoes, he lived in a body like ours, felt what we feel, thought how we think, and was tempted like we are. Because of this, we are called to approach him with joyful confidence, to draw near to his throne of grace. We can come near to a holy And righteous God through Christ. And through him, we receive mercy and we find grace to help in time of need. The Word became flesh, and in him, we have received grace upon grace upon amazing grace. And the Word was also full of truth. I'd like to think for a few minutes now about what it means that the Word became flesh and was full of truth. He came to save us by His grace. And he came to reveal the truth of the triune God to us. Our passage ends in verse 18 by saying that no one has ever seen God, and yet the only God, the Word of God, who became flesh and dwelt among us, who is at the Father's side, he has made God known. Jesus has made the invisible God visible. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Um, He picks up on some of these same ideas about making God known. Jesus says that he came to save those who, who are his and to give them eternal life by his death and resurrection. And this is eternal life, he prays in his prayer to the Father. Eternal life is that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing God through Christ is what it means to have eternal life. As we've been thinking about this passage in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, we've been mostly trying to capture the wonder of the incarnation. Different biblical passages call for different kinds of responses from us. And I think John 1 mainly calls for a response of greater belief and greater wonder and amazement and worship. As we conclude though, now I think we can consider one other kind of application point, one other response that this passage calls us to And this is uh, to love. This ties in, not coincidentally, with our candle that the woods lit for us today. Um, This passage calls us to love with the same kind of love that he has shown us. Through the incarnation, we've come to know God, and we've come to see his glory in Christ. And now we're called to make him known as he has made himself known to us. Jesus concludes his prayer there in John 17 by saying, he, was made, he has made the Father known so that the love He and the Father share may be in us and may be seen in us. It's a lot like grace upon grace. God's love is a gift that keeps on giving. God is love in His triune nature. He loves us with the same kind of love that He has in Himself, and we are to love one another as a reflection of His love. First John 4 picks up these passages too. John talks about them all through his writings in the gospel and his letters to the church. And um, he says in John in 1 John 4, 7, he says, love uh, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Jesus has made God known by his love and the way we are known as followers of Jesus is by our love. 1 John 4 then continues on, And says that the love of God was manifest or made known among us by God sending his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, it says, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So then, beloved brothers, John says, if God so loved us, let us also love one another. No one has ever seen God, but the word has become flesh and made him known. And when we love one another, he is made known to others by his love through us and in us. As we consider the wonder of the incarnation this Christmas, let's grow in our love for him and for one another, and let us worship the word who became flesh, full of grace and truth. Would you pray with me? Father, these are are such magnificent and lofty truths that we think of. We do worship you. We thank you for your grace and your truth, your faithful, steadfast love for us. Um, We pray that you would lift our hearts to worship you today as we respond by taking communion and as we sing songs of worship to you. I pray that you would uh, lift our hearts to respond and worship to you throughout the week. Uh, anticipating celebrating Christmas next weekend and beyond. I pray that our lives would be shaped more and more by uh, a worship of you that matches your wonderful, gracious, and truthful character. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.